Okay, um, get your Bibles out. Uh, Genesis chapter 38, and I will explain in a little bit why we're going backwards. And, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and the ushers are coming down front here and in the conference center. If you don't own a Bible, you do now. That's yours. We're giving that to you as a gift. We'd love for you to get to know the person of Jesus, and that whole thing is a story of redemption. Cover to cover, it's about God saving sinners, and we'd love for you to know what that is. And uh, so please take it, accept it as a gift from us, and uh, that'd be great. If you get a Bible that we're giving you, page 21 is uh, chapter 38 of Genesis. First book of the Bible. It shouldn't be too difficult to find on your own, um, but who knows. Uh, I'm going to start today by a series of questions. They're somewhat, at least in my opinion, somewhat obvious maybe. Um, They're the kind of questions that if you uh, just without thinking jump in there, you're going to be the fool. So don't say anything. Just, I want you to answer these in your, in your head. What is the greatest commandment that there is? Do you have it? Matthew 22, ring a bell. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? God is the center of our lives. Everything is about you. Everything is for you, made by you. So that's the, that's the answer to the first question. Second question is what's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself right? And so God says, listen, I want you to love me with everything you got. The way to do that is to turn your affections and your, your, your sacrificial love on people around you. So let me ask you the third question, and then we're going to use it as a launch into our message today. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Now, that might be a little bit more iffy to, to come up with the answer, but remember what Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends, Right? So the ultimate answer on how to love God with everything you got and the second to love your neighbor yourself is to live for others sacrificially. Fair? We're, we're going to see a story today about sacrificial love. It is uh, clearly a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it is to give everything uh, for people who don't deserve it. But this story is a story of redemption, a great story uh, of uh, repentance, um, but before we get into it, before I kind of pop the bubble, tell you who it is and spend some time talking about it, I, I think we need to do some re- review. And the reason why we need to do review is because I don't know where you guys jump in the story. The story is a Joseph story from Genesis 37 to the end of the book. Um, it's going by fast, so I need you to listen with fast ears today. We've got four chapters because I'm going to pick up 38, which we kind of jumped over, and we're going to deal with chapter 42, 43, and 44. And you'll see why we add 38 to the discussion, because it's a, it's a look at a particular man. But let me just review a little bit. Remember uh, the Joseph story. Joseph um, was the son of Jacob, one of 12 sons. Jacob had two wives, and he had kids by those two wives, and he had uh, two maidservants he had kids with, totaling 12 sons. His favorite wife, Rachel, had two Joseph and Benjamin, and he loved her, loved them. It was so bad, his favoritism for his his son, Joseph, that the brothers were sick and tired of the favoritism and said, the only way we can deal with this is get rid of Joseph, right? And so we're going to kill him. Um, But they came to their senses, or they maybe came with another idea, which is almost even worse, uh, let's sell him into slavery. And so they, they did that, and they took his coat, and they dipped it in blood and convinced their father that somehow Joseph had met harm Maybe he's torn to pieces by an animal or something. But either way, that's how they dealt with their envy and their jealousy of Joseph. They got, they got rid of him. Okay, that's chapter 37. Chapter 38, we skipped over in our study. And we barely touched on it. And there's a reason why, and I'll, I'll disclose it in a little bit. It's going to make total contextual sense when we get to these next three chapters. Chapter 39, we see where Joseph lands up. In his journey in slavery, he ends up in Egypt working for, as a slave, to Potiphar, who is the captain of Pharaoh's guards. And he had the golden touch. Joseph always had the golden touch. Everywhere he went, he found success. And so in Potiphar's experience, Potiphar says, man, you're so good at what you do. I'm not going to worry about my household, my money, my stuff, my farms. It's yours. Run it as you wish, right? So Joseph is running Potiphar's house. The Bible says that Joseph is ruddy and handsome. Um, He's good looking. And Potiphar's wife notices him and says, I want to sleep with you. And she puts the pressure on, not once, not twice, but multiple times suggests for them to sleep together. He says, no, how can I sin against God? Ultimately, she tries to force it by grabbing him. She leaves, he leaves his coat in her hands. She's embarrassed and shamed, and so she accuses him of rape. 
You know the story? And Potiphar comes home. She says, he tried to rape me, and so Potiphar ships him off to prison. So get the story of Joseph, 17-year-old boy being a good son. Nobody in the family likes him. Sell him into slavery. He does everything right, everything the best way, blesses Potiphar and his household, gets falsely accused of rape. Now he's in prison, right? And that's what we saw in chapter 39. In chapter 40, in that story in prison, Pharaoh sends two of his cabinet members, the cupbearer and the baker, for something they did wrong. Who knows what it was? They're in prison and they have dreams. And in those dreams, uh, they're confused or maybe anxious. What do they mean? They're weird dreams. And ultimately, it's Joseph who steps up and says, God interprets dreams. Let me interpret your dreams. And so he does. And, and the story is very simple, that, that in three days, God is going to deliver the cupbearer, and in three days, he's going to have the, the baker executed. And just as, just as jo- Joseph predicted, the cupbearer is released from prison, and Joseph says, hey, when you, when you get out of here, just make sure you remember me, because I'm not doing bad stuff, just remember me, but the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph. So until chapter 41, chapter 41, and we were there last week, chapter 41, Pharaoh starts having dreams. These dreams are about this, these seven years, um, and, and Joseph is the one who interprets it. Uh, he's confused about the dreams. No one can interpret it and tell the cupbearer, goes, wait a minute, there's this Hebrew kid. He's over in prison, and he interpreted our dreams, and it happened just like he said. So Pharaoh calls Joseph in, and he tells him these dreams, and the dreams are simply God's uh, telling in advance what's about to happen to the world, to Egypt specifically, that there was going to be seven years of abundance, like the world has never known, followed by seven years of famine that's going to be so bad it outdoes the seven years of, of abundance, right? And, and so Joseph starts to say to Pharaoh, man, if I were you, if you're going to be smart about this, I would, I'd organize, I'd plan ahead. And so he had a really great idea. And Pharaoh says, man, you have wisdom, you have insight, you obviously thought this through, I want to put you in charge. And so he put Joseph in charge of the entire, the entire country of Egypt and said, there's nobody greater than you except for me, and I'm not even going to think about what you do, just do it. And so again, golden finger, everything Joseph touch, touches is, is working as, as God wants it to. And and so that's where we left off. I think last week in chapter 41, Joseph is now overseeing all of Egypt and the food stores. Um, He he was 17 when he was sold into prison. Now he's 30 when he gets the, the job for Pharaoh. And just as he said, seven years of abundance, followed by famine. Now we're a couple of years into the famine and it's so great, the world's hungry. And they're coming to Egypt because Egypt's got the food and they're buying grain from Joseph. So stop there. That's, we're caught up in the story. Um, remember where I started this, this, this message today, that I told you that what we're going to see today is a picture of redemption, a picture of the work of Jesus, a sacrificial love. And I'm not going to tell you the st- who the person is. It's not Joseph. It's his brother, Judah. In this uh, story that we're going to talk about today, we'll, we'll see a little bit about, about Joseph. But the bulk of the story is about this guy named Joseph. He's a picture of, of redemption. Now, you might stop there and go, wow, Joseph, like Judah is a picture of redemption and, and, and salvation. He must, he must be a really great guy. He must be extra special. He must, obviously, if I go to Hebrews 11 in here, the Hall of Fame of Faith, he's got he's to have a spot in there, right? Well, he, he doesn't. And that's where you're going to get this uh, interesting little uh, contrast compared today. Judah is, is not super special. He's extra common, and uh, he's got issues too. Chapter 38, the reason why we skipped it is because Judah, um, that's the story of his lowest point in his life. Tonight, or this morning, we're going to see how God restores him. But just to do the contrast compare to, from today's story to chapter 38, I, I want to just press on you this thought as we go through the message. A lot of times we have this thought in our minds that, you know, if, if I cleaned up my act, if I worked really hard, if I knew more, if I was a better, quote, Christian, if I tried harder and failed less, God would show up. I mean, he would, he would do that, right? He would, he'd come and bless and do extra measures. But what you're going to see from the story of Judah is that God doesn't use flawless people because there aren't any. He uses us. So the challenge today is we're going to take a look, and this is, this is the part that's no fun. We're going to take a look at sin, and we're all sinners. 
And, and what I've been praying for is that the Holy Spirit would do his work, and he does. I, I call this, this thing we're doing right now this absurd thing called preaching, right? They're just words. But the Bible says that God takes the Holy Spirit and presses on people through things like this. So what I pray happens in this is that God will just deal with our sin. When we're going to get an example of Judah and what it's like to not deal with sin, and, and ultimately maybe God would, in his kindness, would lead us to, to repentance. Um, so the, the reality is that God doesn't use flaws people. He takes people's failures and molds us into the image of Christ for his glory. And in this story today, Judah demonstrates that type of repentance. So let's, let's look at Judah's past and see what God did, what, how he transformed him. Now, again, before we get to chapter 38, remember where we last saw Judah. Judah was so jealous and had a problem with his brother, he sold his brother. Now, he had... Um, he had, um, he coveted what his brother had, the favoritism of his father. But that's one particular sin, to want what someone has. His grew and morphed into envy. Envy is not wanting them to have it. So that's why Joseph's departure, slavery, um, fabricated death, um, is the way he chose to resolve it. Do you see how sick we are? When we look at someone's life and go, God, that's, that's, too, that's too much and it's not fair, I think I deserve. And we go through these, like, these feelings about other people where we, we believe they shouldn't have the things that God is giving them. That's where Judah was to the point of selling his, son, his, his, his brother. No longer was killing, but hey, let's profit from his slavery. Let's have him spend the rest of his life serving someone else and let's make money on that. that that's where J- Judah was when we left him. Pretty bad, right? But chapter 38 tells us it gets worse. It gets far worse. Um, To just tell the story of chapter 38, Judah, uh, it tells us, separates from his family. He leaves the Israelites and moves in with the Canaanites, clearly going against the command of God to stay separate. Um, He immerses himself in the the, uh, Canaanite culture. He becomes best friends with a Canaanite. He marries a Canaanite woman. He adopts the, the loose sexual practices and immoral behaviors of the Canaanite culture. He has sex with a supposed prostitute. His family is a mess so much so that his oldest son, the Bible only says about him, God saw that he was wicked and he killed him. That's all you know about his oldest kid. He's just a bad kid. He's gone. And he wasn't that old, so he was bad in a hurry. So um, in that culture, in that culture to keep the bloodline going, the, the culture was that if the oldest son died, the second son would fulfill the bloodline with his wife. But according to the text in chapter 38, the second son of Judah had no intentions of fulfilling that responsibility. And because he didn't, God killed him. Great legacy. Judah makes a promise to Tamar, who is the wife of his oldest son, and says, listen, here's what I'll do. As soon as my son gets old enough, my youngest son, he he will have children with you. But he had no intention of doing that either. The kid was too young and just out of sight, out of mind. And it gets worse. Tamar, in order to fulfill the intentions of raising up kids by, eight, by, um, by Judah, she pretends to be a prostitute. She takes off her widow's garments and whatever they wore, veil or whatever, and she put it on and went to the city gate to wait. Now, that stop right there. That tells you more than you want to know about where Judah is. All Tamar thought was, all I got to do is pretend to be a prostitute and it'll happen. Just, just think about where Judah was to convince her that that was a, a plan that would happen. So she does. She puts on a veil. She goes, hangs out at the city gate. Sure enough, here comes Judah. And he says, can I sleep with you? She says, what will you pay me? He says, I'll give you a goat. How do I know you'll give me a goat? And she says, well, give me, give me your staff. Give me your cord and your seal. And that will just guarantee to me that you will pay me off. And so Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law um, and doesn't know. She becomes pregnant. And we pick up the story here. Look at chapter 38, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Watch Judah's heart here in verse 24. Bring her out and have her burned to death. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal, whose cord, and whose staff are these. 
Judah recognized them and said, now watch this, watch this. You should underline this. This is the beginning of transformation in Judah's heart, the beginning of repentance. She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, and he did not sleep with her again. That's the start right there of transformation, the recognition that his sin was far greater than even her sin or supposed their sin. He was messed up. Everything, everything from Joseph all the way through moving away to Canaan, all the way to to getting acclimated into the Canaanite culture, to now living the practices of sexual adultery and prostitution. This guy comes to his senses in one moment when he realizes, look what I did. I was willing to burn her, but I'm the guilty one. That's where Judah finds himself. Now, I want you to notice the time frame because I think it's very interesting. I'm going to make a point about this. Chapter 38 starts out with Joseph being sold into slavery. Then we see the sequence of Judah leaving home, Judah having a family, gets married, has sons, and God kills two of them, right? So we see the sequence of time here. Seven years of great abundance in Egypt, followed by at least two bad years before we see chapter 45, which we'll end with today. 22 years. More than likely, Judah's repentance at the end of chapter 38 happened right when the brothers are leaving to Egypt to buy food, okay? So you get the sequence of it all? Maybe seeing his sin with Tamar makes him uh, leave the Canaanite culture and move back home. So when the brothers hear from their father, Jacob, let's go buy food, he's there with them and he goes back. Whatever the sequence is, what we know is this, and here's my point. Sin can hang around a long time. So here's my question to you. Have you hit bottom yet? See, Judah, he goes, listen, I got rid of my brother. Gosh, that was decades ago. I didn't even think about it. And here he is now living in this foreign pagan culture, sleeping with his daughter-in-law, disobedient to God, 22 years after the, the whole thing started. Sin can hang around a long time. So is there a sin that you're engaged with right now that you hate to even think about? Here's what I know, okay? I just know it. Because we're all sinners, there's stories. And they're secret stories to us, but not to God. God knows everything. So things like what you do with your time, what you do with your money, what you do with your affections, all the idols in your life, you know, where you, where you go on the internet, all that stuff, God knows. He knows clearly, and he knows the effect it's having on your life, and, and you're just trying to survive it. Get it out of mind. I don't have to deal with it. I'm going to show you that even though we're going to use a biblical word called repentance, and I know it's not popular in our culture, not even in the church culture, right? It's the best word we ever heard. Judah, God's kindness is leading Judah back to his senses about his sin, and he takes him through the garbage of his sin to get there. And so my question to you, if we're going to use Judah as an example, church, listen very carefully. Is there some sin that you got buried down deep that you haven't repented of? Is there some mark on you that you haven't yet dealt with? This whole point would be just ridiculous if we don't ask that question, right? You don't need more stories. We all need repentance. And that's what this story does for us. It helps us understand that what God can do with some loser like a Judah. I don't know what you got in your story. I don't know what you got in the background. I don't know if you've ever sold someone to slavery or suggested murdering several people or, you know, sleeping with prostitutes and rejecting your God. I don't know what's in your past, but clearly if God can reach down to a Judah and, and slap him awake... I don't care where you are in the story. God can restore you too. Do you see the point? Shake your head if you see the point. Awesome. So let's pick it up. Last week we saw that God gave Pharaoh a dream to tell him about seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of bad. And we pick it up in chapter 42 this morning. Famine strikes not just Egypt but the world and it reaches the family of Jacob I love how 42 starts out. The brothers have no clue what to do. And Jacob goes, why are you just standing around staring at each other? Go buy food in Egypt. They got, they got food. And so, so he does. Look at verse 42, 6 through 8. 
Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. You can stop right there. I got a question for you. Why did Joseph not reveal himself to his brothers? I'm going to give you three possible suggestions. One is because Joseph hasn't seen his father or his little brother in 20-some years. This is his shot. In his mind, this is the way to make that happen. Um, Maybe his brothers are still cutthroats, but this is a way to find out. Verse 9 tells us that Joseph remembered his dream. Now, now, you remember Joseph's dream that started this whole thing? He said in his, in his, out loud to his brothers, listen, I had this dream that you guys are going to all bow down to me. <laughs> now, that would, might irk you a little bit. And so that was part of the environment that Joseph got sold off into slavery. Joseph remembers that story and sees them coming to him, him in the position in Egypt that he is, and he's going, maybe. Maybe God's got something going on there. And, and the third possible reason that the, he did not reveal himself to his brothers is, I ultimately think, the test. I'm calling this message the test of Joseph and the making of Judah. It's the test that Joseph is going to put on his brothers to find out, are, are you still the same guys that you were 22 years ago when you sold me? Are you still the puny little people that, that covet and envy and kill and just lie? Are you that kind of people? We'll, we'll find out. And so Joseph begins this his test, and so he does it with this. He accuses them of being spies, coming in to search out the land. And he has them thrown in jail for three days. I can't imagine what the conversations in that cell sounded like to those brothers. And he comes back, Joseph comes back with a plan that one brother would remain, and he would send the others home to get his younger brother to prove that they're not spies. Now, watch the work of God in chapter 42. Look at verse 21 through 24. Watch what God does. Simple request, and yet this is how the brothers responded. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. He's speaking of Joseph. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was, he was using an interpreter and he turned away from them and began to cry. Now, I don't have any idea why Joseph's crying here. Possibly, um, possibly it's just them talking that's causing the memories of that horrible event in his life. He's going, gosh, that hurts. Or possibly he's seeing a crack in their hearts. And it begins the process of them coming to their senses by the kindness of God. And he's going, wow, that, that, I would love for them to repent. I would love for them to see their sin against me. Either way, that's, that's where it begins. Now, I want you to see a work that God does on behalf of his people that we all know, but we don't like. And there's two audiences here, so I'm going to deal with them specific and change the words slightly, right? If you are a person who doesn't fully put your faith and trust in Christ, you know about him, he's a historical figure, it's a mental ascent, it's not a heart devotion. If that's you, then, then this story is about the, the grace of God's guilt. If you're a Christian and you Put your faith and trust in Christ. And there's a thing the Holy Spirit does called conviction. And that's the grace of God too, isn't it? Man, I don't like it. I don't like to lay awake at night and see my sin. Do you? I don't like to see the the effects of how my sin hurts other people. I don't like to see how it limits what God has or or what the glory of God in a story. I don't like to see it, but it is the kindness of God that leans on his people and crushes them in a loving, biblical way because at the bottom of being crushed over your sin is life, freedom. You understand? So here's the brothers. Here's the brothers in this circumstance, and they're absolutely convinced, "Oh, oh, here we go. I knew it. 22 years, 22 years later, I knew the story wouldn't go away. We're guilty. And that's grace. And that's grace. So look at 25. Joseph gives orders. Uh, chapter 42, verse 25. Joseph gives this order. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provision for the journey. Now let me ask you a question. Is that good or bad? Depends on how you're doing. Because that sounds good to me. Really? We got all this grain? We can provide for families? And it didn't cost us anything? That's good, right? 
problem is, is these people are convicted. They're feeling the weight of their, their decisions in the past and their conscience aren't clear and they're ruined by it. Look at verse 28. And the, or look at 27. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened a sack to feed his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver's been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank. And they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this God has done to us? See, sin can mess you up so much you can't even see good things. If, if they weren't guilty of their brother's blood, supposed, or their brother's life, would they not have seen this as a blessing from God? Potentially. But they couldn't get away from it, and God's going to use that. God's going to use it to bring them to their senses. So the boys arrive at home and tell their dad all that's happened. Here's what's going on. And he requires the, that we bring Benjamin back. And notice verse 38. Um, but Jacob said, my son will not go down with you. His brother is dead, speaking of Joseph, and that's what he thought in his mind. And he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Now stop if you're one of the brothers. What, what did you just hear? Really? Really, Dad? Like, we're, we're all your sons. Really? You only got one left? Really? Isn't this how this whole thing started? You giving him that coat and saying he's your favorite? Isn't this where this all began? We're in this mess because of that kind of lack of love from you. But you don't see that reaction. This is the kind of statement that always bothered the brothers and it caused them to get rid of Joseph in the first place. Does it kick up the jealousy again? Well, we have to look at chapter 43 and 44 to find out. Chapter 43 starts with the family going through the grain that they had bought in Egypt. They're all out of it. And Jacob says to go get more. Judah says we can't go get more unless Benjamin goes with us. Now, in chapter 43, 8 and 9, Judah steps up and, and declares a promise and demonstrates transformation in his own life um, with, these, with this next statement. And by the way, contrast and compare it to, to his brother Reuben who suggests that if, if he doesn't bring Benjamin back, he can kill his grandkids, which, is, which shows you the wickedness and the messed up nature of the rest of the brothers. But here, here is Judah's response in verse 8 of chapter 43. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee a safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Do you see the change here? The transformation, the promise that, that Judah makes so the brothers return to Egypt. They bring Benjamin with them this time to buy grain. Joseph sees his family, invites them to his house for a meal, good or bad. You get the sequence here? Is having the second in command of all of Egypt invite your family over for a party a good or bad thing? Normally, it'd be a good thing, but not for these guys. Look at verse 18 of chapter 43. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of our, the silver that was put in our sacks. The first time, he wants to attack us, overpower us, and seize us and make us slaves. Now th there's a couple things I want you to notice here. Um, one, one is Joseph's dream is being realized. Look at verses 26 and 28. In this dinner party at Joseph's house, verse 26, when Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. Verse 28, they replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well, and they bowed low to pay him honor. They didn't know who Joseph was. Joseph knew who they were. He remembers his dream, and look what God's doing. This is happening. Benjamin's now here. They're bowing down. God, look at what you've done. That's one thing I want you to notice. The second thing I want you to notice, and it's, it's just a side note, and it could, it could use a whole other message just to make its point. But in, in verse 32 of chapter 43, I want you to see that God always preserves his people. Uh, verse 32, and they served him by himself. Speaking of Joseph, when they were doing the dinner party, Joseph went off and was served by himself. The brothers were served by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for it's detestable to Egyptians. Now, let's back up a little bit. Judah went into Canaan 
and Canaan wanted Judah. The assimilation of a pagan world with the God's chosen people, it was going to happen. God, one of the reasons why God allowed his people to go to Egypt was to keep them set apart. Do you see the point? They could live for centuries and not have this thing commingled because the Egyptians thought it was detestable to be with the Israelites. So if you think about the whole story of Scripture and the story of God's redemption and the story of God's people, you see your one small little note in here going, well, maybe, that, maybe that's why in Egypt. He's showing his redemption. He's showing the, the work of Christ, but he's also showing this preserving nature of God for his people. Just wanted to make a note of that. Starting in verse 34, though, Joseph begins his test. Do you see it? He says, when, when portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as great. So let's see, let's see. Where are the brothers now? We're handing out all the food and all the portions, and Benjamin's plate is just stacking high. So if they, I suppose if there was this yeah, favorite son problem in their heart again, maybe that would kick it up. Maybe that jealousy would, would come back again, but we don't see it. Steady she goes. Chapter 44 begins um, Joseph's instructions to his steward to give them a lot of food, pack their donkeys with food, put the silver back in their sacks, and by the way, take this cup and put it in Benjamin's sack and send them on their way. And he does that, and then he says to his steward, go and chase them and accuse them of stealing. It's a test. What are they going to do now? You see? So the steward goes after them, stops them, and here is their response in verse 7 of chapter 44. But they said to him, why does the Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your, from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become the Lord's slaves. Now the steward says, no, 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 we don't need to do that. Let's just do this. The person who has the cup doesn't have to die. They'll just be the slave of, of Joseph. So I don't know. I can only assume here what the brothers are feeling because of all the other examples we have of of moments like this, my guess is their heart is in their throat a little bit. Uh-oh. God, are you doing it again? So the steward, knowing the age bracket of the kids, starts going, they're not kids, they're men, starts going through them from oldest to youngest. And my guess is that they're sitting there with their heart pounding their throat, going, oh, no cup. No cup. No cup. They get through all the brothers, and my guess is when they got to Benjamin, Judah took a big, huge sigh of relief. And he's feeling pretty good about circumstances right now. And, and he's feeling like maybe, maybe we're out of this problem. But the servant opens the sack of Benjamin, and there it is. The only real innocent one among them is charged with stealing. Now, I suppose if you're ever going to put him to the test, this might be the time to do it. But they decide not to abandon Benjamin. They went back to Joseph um, with their youngest brother, and when they arrive to Joseph's house, uh, Judah speaks to Joseph. Look at verse 16 of chapter 44. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. See what it says? See what Judah says? We're innocent and we're guilty. We didn't steal a cup, but God knows what we did. God knows what we did a long time ago. God won't let us go on that sin against Joseph. We're innocent of the cup, but we're guilty, so take us. Take us as servants in your, in your kingdom. We didn't steal, but, but you got us. We're all your slaves. Joseph says, no, just the, just the youngest one, just the one who took the cup needs to be my slave. Now, think about it. If any of the old, envy, coveting, get rid of the favored son was left in him, this would be the time to pull the trigger. We could go back to dad and say, dad, Benjamin stole a cup. Had nothing to do with us. He's now a servant of, of, of Joseph. They could have thrown him under the bus right then. The test of Joseph is getting very refined. And instead of throwing him under the bus, look what Judah does. He steps up in chapter 44, starting at verse 19. There's the longest speech recorded in Genesis, and, and it, it exposes the changed life of Judah. I want to read it all, starting in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? 
And we answered, we have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and, we are, and he is the only one of his fa- mother's sons left, and his father loves him. When you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself, and we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what, what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. and have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you'll bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up in the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then. Please let your servant remain here as the Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Do you see it? Do you see Judah's motivation here? Totally changed. Totally changed. What used to be totally hatred for his brother and the favoritism that he got from his father and hatred towards his father for doing it is totally transformed. Why does he offer to be a slave? Who is he laying his life down for? You could look at it and go, he's doing it for Ben, to get Ben out of prison. Well, that's a side effect, but what's the main motivator here? Do you see it? Who is he doing this for? Say it. His father. Now, it's interesting to me that in the very description he makes to Joseph, he mentions the hurtful words his dad uses to describe why he can't hurt his father. It's not that his dad changed. It's not that his dad repented of being, not loving his kids or treating some with favoritism. Nothing's changed in Jacob's life. Everything's changed in Judah's life. So let's stop and make a point here, right? There is thousands of reasons why we harbor sin and bitterness in our life and it typically has to do with the fact that someone's wounded us and they don't deserve it. Fair? Someone has hurt us to such a degree they're in the permanent can't-get-out-of-jail location in our life. Here you see an example of what true biblical repentance looks like, that it sees its sin to such a degree that it doesn't even concern itself with the sins of others. It's so overwhelmed with its own. Do you get it? Judah's a different man. He's a changed man. Clearly, Ben's going to get out of jail by his suggestion that that Judah uh, offers his life. But Judah loves his imperfect father. And he says, okay, take mine for him. I can't hurt my dad like that. So 22 years ago, Judah sells his brother to slavery, and now he's willing to become one. 22 years ago, he deceived his father into thinking his son, his favorite son, was dead, and there's nothing he could do about it, and didn't care so much about the misery of his dad. Now, Judah loves his father so much, he overlooks the slights his father makes, and he overlooks the lack of love his father has for him, and he gives himself for his dad. So, how does Joseph respond? Pause. That's where we pick up next week. Next week, Neil's going to help us understand how Joseph responds, but we're not done yet. There's much more work to do this morning. We need to look at the similarities. Like I told you in the very beginning, we need to look at the similarities between Judah and the differences between Judah and, and Jesus. The similarities are they both gave up their lives for others, right? That, make, that stands out to us. It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of redemption there. Both give up their lives for the sake of their father. You might go, well, time out, Tim. Didn't Jesus die for sinners? Yes, but side effect. Jesus died for the glory of God. Do you understand? Jesus said in John chapter 15, listen to this, or John chapter 12, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Now he's thinking about the cross to come. Father, save me from this hour. No. 
It's not for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus knew clearly he was dying to glorify the Father. That was his ultimate motivation. Just so you know, church, Jesus was God-centered, not man-centered. So when we're called to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Matthew 22, so does Jesus. We receive the benefit and the blessing of his obedience and his glorifying of the Father called the salvation of our souls, but we aren't preeminent in his life. Do you get it? What would that be? Blasphemy. Jesus was God-centered, just like he calls us to be. Here's the differences between Judah and Jesus. Judah died. Um, he was a bad guy. He was a sinner, clearly, buckets and decades of sin. Here's a bad guy who died for people that, you know, on a horizontal plane were better than him. Benjamin didn't do anything that we know of. And his father, even though he was kind of whacked as a dad, was still not a murderer and or a liar. Jesus, on the other hand, was perfect, sinless, satisfied his father in all ways, and he died for us. What else do you need to see? All those thoughts and motivations that we have, all those idols we keep raising up in front of Jesus, all the ways we treat each other, all the ways we deny him, all that stuff, Jesus died for us. Remember what Romans 8 says? But God demonstrates his own love towards us while we were yet sinners. Why? Let me change that. While we were still at war, while we still hated God, Jesus died for us. That's our condition. Everybody's condition before Jesus is that we're sitting there going, I don't buy it, I don't believe it, and I'm not neutral. I'm at enmity with you. I'm pushing back on you and your control and your sovereignty and your holiness. I don't love you. And in that kind of climate, Jesus comes to this planet and says to all of us who are at war with him, I'll die for them. You see the difference between Judah and Jesus? It's massively different. So let me stop for a second. I've got a whole list of things I want to take the church through in a second. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus... And that's not me saying anything. I wouldn't know. I can't look at your face or your, how you dress and say, well, they don't know Jesus. You know. And just be honest. Just have some integrity about it right now. That, that you're a person who's going, I, I know him. I'm here to check it out. But I'm not, I haven't devoted my life by faith in Christ. If that's you, then I got to talk to you. See, see Judah's a perfect example of what God does to sinners, not perfect people. You might think, well, my, my sin's not so bad. I had an interesting meeting, uh, not a meeting, it wasn't, it was an impromptu Holy Spirit thing this week. I had, I had one of those thinking Thursdays. You ever get those days? Here's what I do. When, I, when my mind is racing, I drive. I drove 200 miles on Thursday, just around. I ended up at Ted, Ted's Hot Dogs. So guess what I was thinking about? <laughs> I went into Ted's Hot Dogs and I stood in line and the girl walked in. She's about 26 or whatever and said, hi, hi, whatever. And she goes, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And blah. <laughs> then we started talking about church and we started talking about stuff. And she goes, do you mind if I sit with you and ask you some questions? And here's what we talked about. I don't know how we got on the subject, but we got into sin. And, and I, I know this, that, that, that the, the, the biblical definition of our problem is like so strange without Jesus. Because when you say you're bent, your inclination, everything in you is leaning away from God. The best that you can do looks like filthy rags to him. The standard of God is holiness, and you might be better than people, like you didn't kill your mother. That makes you, I suppose, better, but you fall short of the standard of God. Holiness and sinfulness are massive, and the chasm is unattainable if Jesus doesn't provide the bridge. You understand? And I'm telling her this story, and I'm looking at her eyes, and I go, God, are you doing anything? I don't know if you're doing anything, but I remember just thinking, like, this has to be supernatural if something happens right now, because it doesn't naturally make sense. She's a sweet girl, working really hard, taking care of herself. There wasn't any scars on her. She wasn't a loser. She was great. But I'm trying to tell her, no, no, your need's greater, greater, far greater than you can imagine. And you need Jesus. And you need to repent of your sin. So listen, person who doesn't know Christ or by your own confession, you don't know Christ. You need to come to Jesus and live. You just bring your garbage just as it is. All your failures, all your inabilities, just like Judah. And understanding your, your failures and say, this is who I am. 
And Jesus provides what you can't get anywhere else. He covers that sin and he punishes that sin in Jesus and you live. You see? This story is great to see how someone can be totally clueless and lost and, and perpetuating their own pain in the life of Judah and see how the tenderness and the kindness of God, even when it's scary, can lead them back to their senses and find freedom. And watch Judah. Judah is so cool with God at this point, he's okay with being a slave. Do you see what the gospel does to people? Jesus transforms Judah. The hope of forgiveness in, in God changed him. And it would be t- so stupid of us to not take a moment right here. If you're wondering about Christ, he offers it free. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to change it. You just say who you are and what you are, and he knows it already. You declare your need, and he provides the solution. Now, church, I've got a list for you. And if you're a note taker, you should be writing right now. Things that, that stand out in this story to me is that, I, and I feel like I have to ask this question or at least say it. Is there some sin that you haven't repented of? I mean, if I, could, if, if I was in Judah's life, just before he loaded the chuck wagon and moved to Canaan and left God's people, just before he added uh, immorality, to his hatred for his brother, I would like to stop and say, hey man, did, why, don't you, why don't you see this sin and repent of it? So church, is there some sin that you won't or haven't repented of? Or in other words, have you hit the bottom yet? I mean, here's what you know. And maybe you know this more intellectually than you know practically, but sin never produces. It never satisfies, right? Ever. Ever. I mean, it was one of the things I said to this girl, I said, don't, don't you know how how sin makes you feel. Like it has these moments, these flares, these, these flare-ups of like, well, that's worth it. But there's only, always the day after. And it's never worth it, is it? It's never worth it. It kills you. It crushes you as a Christian. Church, look, at, the Spirit of God already knows what you're dealing with. Repent. I know it's not a popular word. Repentance is a, a military word. It's used to describe an about face. Here's what sin does. You do what you want, the way you want it, and you don't care about anybody else. You go in your own direction. Repentance is you stop in your tracks, you turn from your sin, and you pursue Jesus. Is there a sin you're dealing with that you haven't let go? Is it a decade old? Is it two decades old? Is it a week old? There isn't anything worth just bearing that burden. Lay it down. Confess it. Call it what Jesus calls it. Second thing I want you to leave with today is that sin makes you paranoid. Just, just as a tip. People who struggle with sin, unconfessed sin, never rest well. Sin makes us paranoid and sin doesn't stay alone. It grows. Just like Judah who mistreated his brother, sent his brother off to, to slavery, decided that that wasn't enough and he ends up in prostitution. How did we get there? Do you not see from your own life when you harbor sin and make a place for sin to take root in your life, it doesn't just stay that simple. It grows, it grows roots and it goes deeper and affects more people and it keeps going, going, going. Don't you see that? You remember that the suggestion that Jesus made, if, if your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Hmm? Yeah, he suggested if you're if your hand causes you to sin and your eye causes you to sin, cut it off, gouge it out. Now, that, he's not suggesting like mutilation as a way to deal with sin. He's suggesting one simple truth. You deal with sin as harshly as necessary. Do whatever it takes. Because sin is trying to trick you. It's trying to teach you that it's worth it, it'll satisfy, and it won't leave an impression. So, let it go. I don't want, you don't want to be here 10 years from now going, maybe I should have got rid of my computer. Maybe I wouldn't have a broken home because of my pornography problem. Maybe I wouldn't have had that affair if I'd have got rid of that phone number. Whatever it takes. And these are life words, by the way. They're not restrictive words. These are freedom words. Jesus simply says, give me your sin. Take it, take it. I don't want it. It won't 
make you happy. It will ruin your life. And those are loving words, right? Those are loving words. Third thing I want you to leave with today. God will use conviction, fear, and sorrow to bring about his joy. How does he do that? I think about the joy of the Lord, and I go, man, maybe it could just be great worship services or, or like how you feel. But God says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, with the Holy Spirit, lean on my people, and I'm going to bring conviction. I'm going to bring brokenness and sorrow over sin. Sorrow. And out of that, Only God can do that. Only God can do that stuff. So, are you miserable? That's a good sign. If you hate your sin, that's a good sign. Another thing I want you to leave with, and that is God has intentions and plans and details that we're not aware of, that is for our good and his glory. Somehow, somehow slavery, famine, prison, and false accusations were a part of God showing off and getting glory and making repentant people. Sometimes you can't see your story. Sometimes you're too close to it. You don't even know how to make it out, but it isn't things you'd pick in your life. It's this pain or it's that hurt or it's that broken relationship or things that look out of order, out of sorts. Well, well God, can, God can take all these things you don't understand and bring about your transformation, just like Judah, and his glory. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe it? I told you this before, but Romans 2, Paul makes it very clear that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Let me add one other thing. And he uses people to do it. One of the things that I think is very interesting in our culture, and that is um, the role that we refuse to play in each other's lives. Confessing sin, confronting sin. I I don't want to be like this hardcore world where nobody has grace. We need to have grace. But that, that isn't our fundamental issue. We want happiness at all costs. And there is a sin either in your children or in your wife or your husband or your friend in your small group or whatever, and you just don't have the guts to say, man, it's sin. I'm a sinner too, but leave your sin. God used Joseph to bring about, even through that really weird test, to bring about the repentance of his brother. I think he wants to use us in each other's life. We confess our sins to each other. We hold each other accountable, those types of things graciously as sinners for sinners. I've told you that before. The most awkward part of this thing is sinners confronting sinners about sin, right? That's just weird. But it's one of the mechanisms. Are you willing to play the role? And one last thing, just to leave with, and to be encouraged, because in Jesus Christ, everything God sends us, everything God sends us is gracious. Here were the brothers in the midst of having a dinner party, having their silver returned to them, not once but twice, couldn't, couldn't enjoy it. As believers in Jesus Christ, people who have been forgiven a debt we couldn't pay, it doesn't matter what happens next, whatever God gives us is a gracious act, amen? Do you believe that? So how we respond now to even things we don't understand that we wouldn't vote for is as they're they're great gifts from God. And I think his Holy Spirit will help us do that. Do you agree? Let me pray for us as uh, Jake comes to lead us in communion.